Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another On Fire episode today. In this episode, I, I you know, I'm thinking more clearly. I'm more fired up. Um, and I'm going to talk about some good stuff. Uh, we're going to start off discussing, I'm going to reiterate some points about freedom, about the virus, about risk mitigation. Second part of the episode, I know that doesn't sound so sweet, but it is sweet. Second part of the episode, I'm going to jump into cultural differences between China and America. I'm going to roast W1 a little bit, but it's good. You can follow me on my website, tstuch.com, T-S-T-U-C-H.com, YouTube, Taylor Space Stutch, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Space Stutch, S-T-U-C-H, Instagram, Taylor Radio, T-A-Y-L-O-R-R-A-D-I-O, um, Twitter, T-Stutch1, T-S-T-U-C-H, the number one. I've got some merch up now. You can find it on most of those things. Okay, enjoy the episode. Here we go, guys. Here we go. Back at it again. Back at it again. So, let's go ahead and uh, let's discuss. Let's discuss a little bit here. There is one I want to reiterate about this virus thing. People, there's still lots of people I know. And, you know, I'm curious. I'd love to hear from some people. What's the situation like in, uh, in your family? What's it like in your circle? Do you have large amounts of people that believe that the virus is fake? So in my circle, it's mixed. It's mixed. I have some, you know, some people that are close to me that, you know, they they live in a contradictory world, where on the one hand the virus is uh, a hoax or it's not that serious, and on the other hand, uh, nearly a hundred thousand people have died. And, you know, some people would like to say that, hey, it's not real, not really that many people have died, or it's not that serious. And, you know, there's just so much information coming out about this, but I'm still in the camp of precaution, still in the camp of taking precautionary measures. We don't know a lot about this virus. I know I keep saying it. I know I keep talking about it, but it's something that I really want to drill home. If anyone is, if you don't believe the virus is real, or if you don't believe that it's very harmful, or if you know somebody that has these beliefs, remember, it's not about what we know. It's not about what we know. It's about what we don't know. This is something that I think we have to continue to refine again and again and again. This is more about risk management than it is about science, because we don't have the science. We don't have the data. It would be nice if we could wait, if we could collect years and years of data on this virus, run tests, see who it affects, see who it doesn't. You know, we've got, it'd be nice if we had medicines and all these different things that worked. The bottom line is we don't have these things. And so in the face of uncertainty like this, we have to be careful. Now, some people might point out and say, well, Taylor, Taylor, the official death stats show that, you know, you know, it's. Well, I think we're probably close to 90,000 now. Um, I could go ahead and check that. Coronavirus world meter It is uh, officially the number of death in the United States is probably, I'm going to guess 88,000. Let's check. 85,000. Okay, that's good. I undershot it, or overshot it. So, we've got 85,000 dead. Now, some people might say, look, dude, you know, the, the flu... 
the flu, you know, kills more people every year. One, I've already talked about the issues with the flu, but I'll briefly touch it on it again. Remember, guys, the flu death rate every year is not a count of deaths. The flu death rate is estimates. What we have right now are actual counted deaths. The flu death estimates, the median range is always much lower than the highest range. People like to play games. They like to say, oh, you know, 90,000 people are estimated to have died from the flu last year. No, that's the high range. Like the, the, the low range was like maybe, say, 50 or 30,000. High range was, say, like 80 or 90,000. But those are estimates. Those aren't counts. All right. If you wonder why you've never heard or met somebody who's known anyone who died of the flu or flu-related issues, most people haven't. It's because, simply put, the flu-related numbers are actually low. They're actually probably very low. Now, um, what I want to get to is we – even if you point to the numbers and you say, look, only 100,000 people have died. Okay, I'm sorry. 85,000 people have died, which, once again, is almost at the highest end of a whole year of flu numbers have died in a span of like three months. If you want to say that's not too bad, remember, we don't know much about this virus yet. We still don't know much about this virus. We don't know much about who it affects. We don't know much about how long the effects are. There are some reports of people who thought they were asymptomatic, but they actually developed symptoms weeks later. There are reports of people that thought they were asymptomatic, and when they ran tests or scans on them, they saw there was actually some minor damage to their lungs. Okay, so we don't have a good understanding of exactly what's going on with this virus. Uh, you can there's anecdotal evidence on Twitter of people, and you know it's hard to verify, but there are claims from actual reputable people where some people have said, "Look, I've had this thing for like four or five weeks. I've had this thing for five or six weeks." There are multiple reports of people in their 30s and 40s that have had the virus and have been fighting it for six, seven, eight weeks. And that's a very long time. That's a very long time to deal with the sickness. You know, I usually get sick about once a year and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a cold. I don't know what the hell it is. I usually get sick about once a year. Um, It could be December, January. And it's usually I get a fever, get a runny nose, you know, the whole shebang. But it's usually a couple days. Like at the most, if it's bad, it's like maybe five days of actual sickness. And then you get a a couple days bumper where like you're not actually sick anymore, um, but you're getting back into the groove. With this thing, man, there are reports of, of younger people under 50 that are just knocked the hell out. So, you know, you might say, well, still the number's low percentage, but it's like, dude, we don't know. So like I said, you know, people ought to be approaching this in, uh, or it seems as though this ought to be approached from the risk mitigation side. This is why I trust like a Nassim Taleb and what he says. He's saying, look, we don't know the effects this could have on the population. It's not just about death rate. It's not just about current mortality rates. We need to, we don't know what happens with this virus if it just runs over everybody. You know, we don't understand exactly how this could affect people, so we need to be careful. And I agree with that. Um, now, also, I want to take some time to reiterate the idea of freedom. We are currently in a war of freedom and security, or we're in a 
we are in what appears to be a fight, a battle about freedom and security. Are we really in a war of freedom and security? I am not so convinced. And here's why I say that. Because we are so interconnected. We have been so interconnected with China and with other nations that the idea that we are this sovereign nation, really, it has been up for debate for a while. As I've pointed out previously, how free of a nation are we if we are dependent on other nations to make the critical things that we have to have? So, and you might say, well, I mean, but we're still free. Like, I can still go out and, like, do things. Well, I mean, yeah, you're as free as many people in China are free. Many people in China, they can go out and they can eat where they want. You know, okay, right now it's a little different, but... Before the virus, they could go out and eat where they want, go to the clubs, go to the gym, you know, get a job, do all this stuff. Um, but on the edge cases, it's the edge cases where you measure the true freedom. It's the edge cases of what is – how far can you go in terms of what you can say? How far can you go in terms of what you can do? If you're feeling attacked, can you defend yourself? These are the true questions about freedom and security. And what we're finding out is that our situation was much more precarious than we thought. And here's what I'm getting at, is with everything being made in China, well, what happens when we find out that Chinese, the Chinese government is backing efforts to steal intellectual property from our companies, from our universities? Well, if China is making all of our medicines or if they're making like 90% of the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients – or the important pharmaceutical ingredients for all of our medicines, what, how far can we actually go to stop them from doing something? If China engages in behavior, like if China's government, the CCP, engages in behavior that we don't agree with, say I'm in Texas and the Chinese government – and I work for a company and the Chinese government has stolen our IP – and then uses it to develop the same product or service in China, then sells it back to Americans at a cheaper price, and I go out of business. Is that freedom? Because what can I do about that? I have the freedom to find another job or to start another business, but I don't have the freedom to defend myself against IP theft, right? What, what about other countries buying up uh, some companies here in the United States like uh, Smithsfields, the um, – that uh, that food – I want to say food manufacturer, the food producer. What? They make pork, they make pork products. They got you know, all that stuff. All that stuff. How much freedom do we really have if they are owned and controlled by a Chinese company, which they are? So these are important things that we have to understand about freedom and liberty. It's not just, you know, what we think of as capitalism isn't what we have all been built by the Republican Party. You know, uh, free enterprise is more like it. Yeah, we want to have free enterprise. We don't want to have state-sponsored capitalism where the uh, where the government where the wealthy people make laws that make it impossible for other people to come come up and compete. That's what we have in the United States. Now, I can't think of things off the top of my head, but you have companies that once people get enough money and power, then they go and lobby the government. They make, then they start making the rules, state, local, nationally, and then they prevent their competitors from coming up and being able to compete with them. 
So that's what we have in the United States. We don't have a free enterprise, free market system like you think. Now, that being said, we're also embedded in a larger international game. So yes, okay, we want free enterprise here in the United States. But now we have to ask ourselves, what if another country wants to invade us or wants to use our system against ourselves, like what the Chinese have done? The Chinese have used our uh, free ent- – it was what we have of a free enterprise system against us, right? So they've gone, hey, we want to do business with you, but we're going to steal shit from you and we're just going to make up our own terms to everything. Well, so what do you do then? There has to be – if you're going to have a nation, if you're going to have borders, we have to have a way to deal with this. But right now, it appears we don't have an effective way to deal with this. And so when people are talking about freedom, I want the freedom to open up my business again. Yes, I understand where those people are coming from. And I think people should be able to open up their businesses. I just think people should act responsibly. People need to understand that this is an unknown situation. Okay? Get yourself a face mask. Get yourself a face shield. You know? Don't go out and party with 50 people you've never met before. Now, um, I'm going to leave that here, and then we're going to go on to another discussion after this break. Okay, now let's jump into propaganda. So there is a prominent Twitter voice, a prominent Bitcoin advocate named Dovey Wan. She's not only is she know her stuff with the Bitcoin universe and some San Francisco stuff, but she's also pretty cute, which makes her very compelling to... Not only myself, but many others. So she put out a tweet, some tweets today or yesterday that uh, caught my attention, and I wanted to go over them. So she talks about, she says, sample size 20, kind of warning everybody. She's, you know, this is just anecdotal evidence. But she writes, um, she hung out in in, uh, Guangzhou with some school friends and asked them in person, are you mad with CCP this time? She said that most of them answered... I would be madder if the economy is fucked, and now I have no time to think about it, as I need to get my shit together first. She writes, this is how high-functional pragmatism kicks in. As long as the economy is fine, politics, human rights, etc. is never my concern. Comparing history of both sides, she writes, a key distinction is Western revolutions are mostly led by elites versus China, always the bottom class who were too poor to survive. This characteristic on one hand... Okay, so let's stop there. Let's stop there. Let's take a look at what she said. Because I think, you know, I am learning more and more that uh, some Chinese people that I know and I'm friendly with tend to hold these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of lines. Um, What's interesting is she writes... uh, They're not mad. They'd be mad if the economy was fucked and they're not as concerned... With and I pardon the language it, with the uh, with human rights and things like that, as long as the economics are good. So I understand that. I understand that reasoning, um, but it's not just about. I want to take it out of the context of it merely being pragmatism, because yes, it's pragmatic in terms of. I would say it's more about survival than necessarily pragmatism because pragmatism could be applied in in various ways Uh, but I want I think it's more about survival right so basically because of Chinese China's uh, I would 
put forth that because of China's uh, very rocky last century, that yes, stability and basic survivability is very key. Okay, um, people need to be able to feed their families. People need to be able to. People need to have an idea that they're not only going to survive, but they'll be able to push forth into a new generation. Okay, um, and I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, I think that she's she's on target there. And of course, if people can't eat, if they can't survive, then um, then po- you know political concerns are going to go by the wayside. Now, she writes, comparing both sides, a key distinction is Western revolutions are mostly led by elites versus China, bottom up. So here is where we have some interesting propaganda. Um, she actually believes that the revolutions in China are, were legitimately led by bottom up, whereas in the Western world, it's led by the elites. I would disagree with her there, and I would argue that all revolutions are really run by elites. They're just run by elites who are able to persuade various – Well, you, if you want to believe in the class system, I would put forth the idea that it's elites that can get the class systems on board or get the different classes on board. So Mao Zedong, I don't know how poor he was. I don't know exactly his situation, but he was able to get the lower class to fight on his behalf. But that is how you get revolutions. Um, if I'm incorrect, I believe when I was listening to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, The Gulag uh, Archipelago, um, when he talks about the, the communist revolution in Russia, is it was, it was run by the people that controlled media. Or it wasn't just totally run by, but it was basically, you know, it was the people that advocate for the revolutions are usually not the poor farmers even though they're starving they just want to they just want people to leave them alone it's the elites who uh, it's the more elite class who always push for these revolutions but they what they do is is they use their power in the media like they use television they use newspapers they could use social media now they galvanize the lower classes to do their bidding for them and it's the same in china it's the same shit in China. I think that's just kind of human nature. Um, and maybe there's there's some I, – I know I'm ignorant of some history there, especially in China. But uh, like with Mao Zedong, you know, I, I, maybe I need to do some, some, some research on it. But it's not just about the – you know, the – if the poor are doing well, then uh, – if the poor aren't doing well, then they rise up. No, it's more like if the poor are doing well, they try to find a way to survive. But when the middle class elites, you know, or when the elites decide they want to rise up, then they pull everyone else with them. Uh, Let's see here. She writes another one. uh, This characteristic on the one hand unites everybody's goal towards economic growth and future prosperity really well. So folks can well behave in order to get there. A big economy machine is less frictional or using a company as an analogy. Okay, she writes the Western citizens are more demanding and hard to manage employees while the Chinese – is well, she should say are the Chinese are more collaborative, not being obedient but being pragmatic and calculating. Bullshit. Clearly, see the benefits of collective vector uh, can lead to a good life of the individual. Um. So okay, I want to focus on that part. She writes the Western citizens are more demanding 
and hard to manage employees while the Chinese is more collaborative. So um, I don't necessarily disagree with her on that, but I would replace collaborative uh, with – or okay, she said well-behaved, but they're, they're pragmatic. She said they are more pragmatic and it's less about um, – what is it? Less about being obedient than it's pragmatic. See, that's I, – I call bullshit on that. Bullshit on that. I definitely think it's more about being obedient and less about being pragmatic. Um, and I think that has to do with what I talked about last week was with the Confucian culture, which is interesting because she talked about it herself, the Confucian culture. Um, I don't know a whole lot. I'm not a scholar on Confucianism, um, but I can say that there is a much more highly guarded respect for elders and authority and the hierarchy than there is right now in Western culture. If that is propagated hard enough alone, that is going to lead to um, more obedience. And it's true. It is they are more obedient people. Right? I mean they go in you go into a classroom and you know the way that some I mean I taught English in China for a little bit and the way that they can act towards the students and treat the students, they can be much more harsh because the students are more obedient. The students have been more obedient to their parents and their teachers than we are in the West. Um, now, I want to point out that I don't necessarily think she's – I think the distinction that people are more obedient – I think people are more obedient in China than they are in the United States. I'll give her that. I don't necessarily think people are um, necessarily more pragmatic uh, or that they're being more pragmatic. I don't think that there is a idea in China – that everybody's like, hey, we just have to let the CCP um, rule over us because if we do, we're all gonna, you know, we're all gonna benefit in the long run. No, I think they let the CCP rule them because it to fight against it is more trouble than it's worth. Does that make sense, right? And this is why the economy is so important for China because. Once there is a – once there's the threshold, once you hit the inflection point where it is no longer – people are no longer um, – uh, how, how should I put this? Once the threshold or the inflection point is reached where the cost of protesting or the cost of trying to change the system is now lower – then staying in the system, then you're going to start seeing change, right? Then you will start to see changes happen more or you will start to see people push back. But right now, a lot of people are surviving, so they're not going to rock the boat, especially when they know – a lot of people know that 40 years ago, people weren't surviving. So they're like, okay, okay, okay. You know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, a lot of us were dying. Now we're in a much better place. The CCP's really, uh, they're really oppressive to all of us, but, you know, we're still able to do most things. If they get too oppressive or if the economy slows enough, then you're going to see that quote unquote, that pragmatism that she's talking about, that obedient, that pragmatism is going to go away more and more, but it's not going to go away necessarily because of pragmatism so much as just if you want to equate pragmatism and survivability sure i guess so i think it has more to do with surviving right once the cost of um of listening to the ccp is so high that it damages your chances of survival 
and the survival of your kids, then you're going to you're going to have to do something different. And I do I think Dovey is wrong on some of this. Um, I I don't think that the Chinese people are in general just these very calculating and pragmatic people in that way. I think it's more or less like hey, it, it's like being you know. You could equate it to any system, any system of slavery or any – even you know, here in the West or employment. You don't have to be calculating to put up with abuse, right? You just might put up with enough abuse. There might be a threshold where you say, look, I'm being abused but I'm surviving and it's not too, too bad. You, know, you could look at, at the Chinese people as being abused by the CCP um, and it's just not bad enough for them to quit. The CCP relationship yet It's like being in an abusive relationship where you're controlled Well as long as you're being beat Only some of the time Then then you can put up with it But if the beatings persist Over time And then you eventually say I gotta get the fuck out of here That doesn't mean you're these, this, this great Pragmatic calculating person It just means that you were following Some basic survival instincts And once the cost of surviving Or once the cost of staying In the, in the bad relationship got Higher than, it, than you could deal with You had to leave the relationship You know that's not, that's not This you know I think that Dovey Wan is running propaganda Here and I wonder if she's Running the propaganda For um, For if she's doing it, is it cognitive dissonance or is it that she really believes it because she's Chinese and she wants to stand for her country? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, what exactly is going on here. But she's trying to make it out like the Chinese people actually are, you know, systematically being pragmatic in working with the CCP versus more like they're being abused by the CCP, but it's working, so they're dealing with it. That's my perspective. Right, people right now in China are living better than they did 50 years ago. The CCP are still in control. It's going to be a lot of trouble to leave them. So just fucking let them do their thing. As long as they can do most of the things they want to do, they're okay. You know. So that's that's what I think. Um, and then she writes, "Is propaganda or suppression?" Oh, I also wanted to talk about her stance on the U.S. and the Western countries. I agree with what she says about the Western countries. Um, that we are more, as a society, we're more demanding of the state and less um, – we are more demanding of, of, of the state and less responsible. And that is something that Jordan Peterson talked about often before he had his mental breakdown, but something I totally agree with, that people are not willing to take responsibility for themselves and their family. People are very demanding of the state. Um, and now it's, it's not just – you know, we live in, in my opinion, in the West. We've got lots of problems. We lived in a corrupt society, um, so I can't defend that. I think she's actually right. I think we are too demanding. I think people are too entitled. People demand that the government uh, fix everybody's problems. People demand that the government bail them out all the time. Um, and I'm not talking about during the pandemic because the government ordered everyone to shut after the government failed to deal with anything, but. Um, in regular good times, people don't want to take responsibility. We live in a very degenerate society. Don't get me wrong. I engage in the degeneracy and the, uh, the debauchery from time to time. Uh, but it's not a good thing. And I wish that uh, the culture were different. And yes, 
I don't dive into it as as much as many other people do because I'm more focused on uh, trying to improve my lot in life. So I can't be as engaged in some of the more degenerate elements of society as others. But, you know, um, instead of people trying to improve themselves, a lot of times people just want to demand things from the government, from their parents, from their friends, from who's ever near them. And I think she's right about that. Another key element that I think prohibits Western collaborative thinking within the state or Western collaborative thinking within uh, countries, cities, and towns is uh, homogeneity versus heterogeneity. And I truly do believe that because China is a more uh, culturally unified country— And yes, race does play an element of it, right? Everyone in China is Chinese, or, you know, not everybody, but most. It allows for a collective understanding and action that we cannot achieve in certain Western countries. So in the United States, for example, if you fly the American flag, some people get offended. You cannot have collaborative work within a country if flying your own country's flag is offensive, You cannot have collaborative work in your country when every time somebody is proud of their nation, they are told that they are racist, they are sexist, they are bigoted, they're homophobic. You you cannot have a collaborative society when you say that I think that that, uh, most people are boys or girls. Like in the United States, it is controversial to say that you think there are only two genders. It's controversial for you to say that you don't think men should be using the women's restroom. Okay? These things shouldn't be controversial to say. It should be incumbent on the minority trying to push this on the majority that they should be more or less accepted versus um, uh, the minority pushing it upon the majority that the majority's view should be accepted. Now, and I'm not talking about yeah, that. What I just said could be construed and be deemed as uh, quite controversial, but there are certain norms in society that have existed for a long, long time. Right, the way that we tend to classify relationships between men and women. You will find aberrations throughout history, right? Maybe certain things the Greeks did or certain things other people did. But if you look at certain things like certain holy texts or societies of, of ancient peoples, you'll find that there was lots of marriage between men and women. That in a lot of places, there wasn't a lot of normalizing of um, people, you know, saying, ah, oh, well, I'm gay, poly, bi, whatever. Now, That doesn't mean I'm saying that you're wrong and you're going to hell. But what I'm saying is, is that making the things that we've done as humans forever unacceptable to talk about, right? Like the majority of things that people do. Once I cannot say that, um, you know, I think that there's only two genders and considering most people believe that, you start breaking down people's ability to collaborate with each other. You... In the West, we are obsessed with breaking down people's ability to collaborate with each other across racial lines and and other kinds of lines because you can't say anything that offends everybody else. So you have to balkanize. So if I want to say, 
oh, hey, uh, I think there are, you know, there's two genders. Well, okay, in the past, that was just accepted, and it was like, okay, there are two genders, but then there are some people that are kind of on the margins. That was kind of the accepted idea, and that's, that's you know, don't get me wrong. I know that some people were hurt and, and injured back in the day, but we don't live in those times. Instead, now, if I want to say that I have to be in my own group, I have to be in a group, a smaller group of people who believe in the same politics as me. You know, if I want to say something about, if I want to make a joke about a particular group of people, well, in the United States, considering we had a a more cultural, homogenous society back 40 years ago, you could make certain jokes about maybe certain people from a country or certain people from a certain ethnic group, and it was okay, right? Now, I'm not saying that everyone should run around being bigoted, but what I'm getting at is the more diverse you get, the harder it is for the country to come together because everyone says something that's going to piss off somebody else. And that's what we have in the United States, but they don't have that in China. In fact, I think this is one of the uh, Achilles heels of the United States and other Western countries. And one reason why I do think that we should limit immigration is because we have to reinvigorate our country somehow. We have to reinvigorate ourselves with a cultural identity that is acceptable. And it cannot be this radical left-wing Marxism. It cannot be everybody's included because not everyone's included. Most people are included, but not everyone's included. You cannot have every potential type of person included because then you're going to get the people in your group that want to kill you, right? It's just, it's just like the idea of you cannot be tolerant of the intolerant. So in this country, we have to figure out a way to reinvigorate a culture so we can continue to compete on the world stage. And so the West survives. You know, if you want democracy to survive, if you want republicanism or our federal system to survive, human rights the way that uh, they've been expanded over the last 200, 300 years, if you want those to go forward, there has to be a cultural notion that these are good and they are worth putting forward. But the more diverse we become along um, all kinds of different cultural lines, the less these ideas will have emphasis because not other cultures, other places around the world don't have these same ideas that we have in the United States. Does, I'm not saying they're better or worse, but they're not the same. So if you want these ideas, then we've got to figure out a way to become more culturally cohesive. That is something I do believe China has over us, and it could be something that pulls them ahead. Anyway, that's all for my rant for today. Um, you know where to follow me. You can follow my blog. Excuse my last post. I was a little bit buzzed. Uh, it's at tstuch.com, T-S-T-U-C-H.com. Um, you can, on my YouTube channel, I'll put it up on my website. You can buy my merch. I came out with a really funny t-shirt about sloppy Joe Biden. Uh, you can go to uh, YouTube, Taylor Space Stutch, T-A-Y-L-O-R Space Stutch, S-T-U-C-H, to get that there. Follow me on Instagram, Taylor Radio, T-A-Y-L-O-R-R-A-D-I-O. Follow me on Twitter, tstutch1. That's all. Thank you.